Did well, that hurt so bad, having to clap your hand? It, it really didn't. Hello, everyone. I'm Vanya. I am wounded. <laughs> she is wounded. I'm Avrin, and this is Rom Crime. Welcome. Welcome. We've missed you. Thank you. That's right. It's been a minute. It really has. No, I, what, I have, um, I've got a brace on my finger, which I was just telling Avrin that I feel a sort of, sh- I feel sheepish because I'm like, I, it's like a, you know, multi-parted answer it's like one when you're an adult and you get hurt there's just something about it where you're like but i'm an adult i'm not supposed to do stupid things not you know and and like hurt myself but also not supposed to land in the emergency room for any reason other than my children well that's (laughs) the thing is i always go to urgent care or the er because of you know who the -hmm. little one luckily knocking on fake wood right here uh, but yes, a, like long story short, I won't keep you all waiting with bated breath. But uh, yeah, I cut my finger, but pretty like it was bigger than I would normally have cut my finger. Yeah, you sent me a picture, or and I was whatever. like, yeah, you might wanna, you might wanna go have someone <laughs> just make sure you want to be able to use that finger. I'm assuming in the future. We were about to record like a couple hours ago, and I was just like hungry. I'm like, I'm just gonna shove some bread in my mouth, so I, I gotta. <laughs> I'm very fancy. I'm very fancy, Avrin. I went to Costco and I got a baguette. <laughs> and I was like, I probably should have just done the thing where you rip it off and you start eating it. But my mind, I was like, I'm going to cut the baguette. And then it slipped and then Ouchie. cut my finger. Because, you know, you give like a lot of strength for those strong ass baguettes. So that's those crusty baguettes, man. Exactly. You got to get this. Did you have a serrated knife? Or yeah. No? Oof. Yeah. Ouch, 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 ouch. I know. Ouch. I'm I just sorry. felt that in my knees. It makes your butthole pucker. <laughs> but I it was, does. I was saying, you know, as bartenders, we're so used to like you cut yourself and then you have to like cut a hundred pounds of you know limes, limes or yeah. whatever. And you're, you just wear like the finger condom yeah, and hope for the best yeah. and hope you, no one ends up with blood in their cocktail. Oh my god! <laughs> no, that's just so kidding. True. We don't get blood in your cocktails. No, no. I'll wear like full blown gloves before I'll let that happen. That me too. Well, there was one time where I had cut off the tip of my finger like fully off. Oh my god! I know. I'm so sorry, guys. You didn't know this was going to be like rom horror. No, crime. It's a medical show now. <laughs> in the the tip of the middle finger is cut off. Yes, and so I kept it though, because I'm I put it on ice and then I wrapped my finger, put the condom on, and put a glove on. I mean, it was like the gushing was disgusting. I, c- so I cannot sorry. believe you put it on ice. You're like, we'll just do this later. Well, I'm and then busy. I called my mother-in-law, who's like a nurse, and she's she's an amazing nurse. She's been trauma, you know, like nurse. She's just the most incredible person. <laughs> I, I called her earlier, and and then of course we got busy in a in a happy hour. She called me back. She's like, are you okay? Can you send me a picture? And it was right when happy hour was ending and my husband, Adam was there at the bar waiting basically for me to get off. It was the day shift. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so scared to un- to take this off. And honestly, I shouldn't have done it. It was awful. And she was like, okay, you know, here's what the th- you've waited basically too long and that it's too small to actually, they're not going to reattach that. <laughs> <laughs> that little sliver of the tip of your finger that you yeah. saved on ice. <laughs> I mean, it was like the size of a dime, but. Oh my god! She was still oh my god, maybe a little thing. bit smaller. I know. So goddamn, I should probably be more careful. Um, I guess I could say that's my crime of the week. <laughs> right there, you go. <laughs> Do you have a rom? You? Oh god, a rom. Um, I mean, I'm just happy that everyone's healthy right now. I think because we've been through myself, the kids, everybody getting sick, and I'm just like. I feel nervous to be excited that everyone is healthy. You know what? I, I'm mm-hmm. just thinking. Yeah, you don't you don't want to jinx it. The other thing is I have and I'm not. So our old back to the bar. I'm going to talk about it again. Mm-hmm. But our old boss, one of our bosses would do this thing where he would go nuts on New Year's Eve drinking, you know, wise and then mm-hmm. not drink again until St. Patty's Day. Yeah. So oh, I remember that well. Yeah. Right? So you were doing the same thing. I'm trying. We'll see. And I actually feel great. I can't tell you how much more energy I have. It's great. Oh, that's wonderful. I know I've been, I keep delaying it because I guess my ROM is I just had a fantastic, beautiful, magical three days in Joshua Tree. Oh. I've never really actually been to the park there. We went yes. into the national park. We did some hikes or not hikes. We call it like some vigorous walking okay. and then some some rock scrambling. I wouldn't say rock climbing, but I scrambled up some boulders. That's scary. I saw some gorgeous stars. It was so much 
fun. But because I knew we were doing that, I had planned on you and I had even talked about maybe doing a whole 30 together. That's in January. right. <clears throat> and I was it wasn't even so much about the drinking part. It was just more like I don't want to be that person with like really, really crazy dietary restrictions yeah, when I'm on a vacation with other people that don't want to eat like that. Sure. So I was just like putting it off. And then I came back and I've just been at work nonstop. That's since so I got crazy. Back. And I so I haven't done any of my like resets for the new year but yeah. i'm planning on starting um let's see today i should have started today i already had cheese though so <laughs> <laughs> i guess i'll plan on starting maybe tomorrow um but yeah i gotta get my ducks in a row because there's just like so much to it if I you it. if you're not ready and set up to go for it it's just so easy to be like i'll start again tomorrow. i feel you i really do i i was also i've been abstaining from uh meat so i've been like a pesky vegetarian lately Meaning pescatarian. Oh, good for you. Um, but I did actually, we went to a butcher because my thing is, is I need to know that the animals had a nice life. And I know that sounds very um, Portlandia, but it's true. Like <laughs> I watched another friggin' documentary of, and now I'm like, oh my God, especially chickens, to be honest. I mean, beef for sure. But like I eat a lot more chicken, I think, than I do with beef. And it's like one of, the, I watched the twin experiment on, and I know it's very skewed. It's like twins and then they test all their bloods beforehand and then one of them goes vegan, one of them eats, uh, they're both healthy, fairly balanced diets, but um, it was definitely like, you know, people who were plant-based were, eat, were their blood work was much better, yeah. Much um, healthier. But they interview like a farmer guy who, he, he doesn't, like farm the chickens but he owns the land and it, it was like foster's chicken or something like that something like that yeah he, mm -hmm. he was like i would never feed it for, to my children or my family oh and i was yikes. like oh my god and then of course You're I like got all we do is feed our children <laughs> meat from the grocery store Seriously. all across all across america that's how it's done but I yeah found no, i know plant-based is probably it's the tough way to though go. it's tough because it's like hard to get enough protein and it i if you're out there and you're vegan, you're gonna be like, "Oh, wait a minute! Yes, there is," and that's true. I have been learning about it. There is ways. There are ways. In fact, I just found another pasta, Avrin. That's an edamame Ooh. spaghetti, forty-two grams of protein in like three ounces, which is. I'm like, is that oh, gonna yeah. kill me? <laughs> is, that, is that too much protein? Anyways. That's like maybe post-workout pasta. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really down in this bolognese. <laughs> really, really I'm doing my protein punch right now. For my workout. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's funny. I never think about that, but I actually feel like I recently read something or I took a quiz on protein and I don't know. I realized I didn't know anything about it. There's so much more protein in like spinach than there is in bacon, you know? And Isn't you're that like, weird? Because there's more fat. Yeah. That's what I, yeah. me too. I'm learning. And edamame is crazy. That's the one thing that my son will eat because he's such a turd about food. And I'm like, oh, thank God. At least I'm, I try to feed him a little edamame every day because at so least you know it has getting protein and like yeah. fiber and stuff. So, mm -hmm. I mean, gosh, you guys, welcome to us. It's 2024. Here we're back <laughs> with a vengeance here. And I can't Coming wait to in talk hot, true crime. Yeah. Like some diets and some slit fingers. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I guess my crime, if I have to pick a crime, is I actually love that it's been rainy, except for that I was at work really late for at least one of the nights it was raining, oh. maybe even two. And it makes me want to be home snuggled up. But yeah. my little car, it's a little two-seater. The back motorized window, the last time we put the top down, because it's a, it's a convertible. It's an old car. It's not fancy, clearly, as I'm about to explain. <laughs> when we put the top back up, the rear window, those like little half windows, yeah. wouldn't go back up. Last night, I thought I dreamt this. My husband literally goes... Did you cover, did you put the tarp on the car? And I was like, huh? <laughs> it's like torrential downpour. Oh, no. This morning we go out there and it's like a swimming pool in my car. Um, oh, no. It's going to be okay. I mean, it's not actually a swimming pool, but everything is just super wet. So it's tarped up now. <laughs> Okay. Um, and then I guess I'll figure out a way to take the blow dryer out there or something or whatever you do. But yeah. that's my crime. My crime is uh, broken windows and rain. That's a crime. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah. I am. That's awful. But I can tell you I'm going to switch our energy because we get to talk about a uh, teenage rom-com. Yes, this is an episode, you guys, that is like practically a year in the making, I, I feel know. like at this point, or half a year in the making. Life. This was the request by my mama for a crime that I think we even told you we were going to do, yes. and then the strike happened, and so 
we didn't do it until now, but we d- we're keeping our word. So Betsy, this episode is for you That's and for right. everyone else who likes, you know. And since I know the crime sort of, but so I was moved to, and actually probably everyone was like, this would be a good one. I'm like, great. I love it. <laughs> um, has anyone out there, uh, any of our listeners ever watched Can't Buy Me Love? Love that movie so hard. It's I was 1987, with it. I believe. It is, yes, it is a Patrick Dempsey heavy movie. Yes. I oh love it. Oh my God, him. he's so cute in it because he really is believable at that age for him as like a dweeb, but then also a dreamboat. Yeah, I know. He's he's pretty perfect, you know? Yeah. Because he's charismatic. You can tell, like, people were like, you're going to be a star, man. Like, yeah. you know, he has that beautiful curly hair. He's like... Mm-hmm. And the whole premise of the story, so it also stars a girl named Amanda Peterson who plays this, like cool girl he wants to be in this cool group so bad he's in high school he thinks if he could just be in this cool group then he can have it made you know and um he witnesses her at the mall or something she had ruined her mother's like a very expensive leather jacket like a thousand dollars that's amazing isn't it like a fringe like white suede or leather coat and you're just like yeah, I'll never of course forget you stole it. that. From oh, I would have too. <laughs> I wish I had one right now. I'm telling you, it would match my. Although my my cowboy boots are creamish, but my God, I want that. Whatever, one. you'd make it work. But it's um, and so he he's been he's he's lawn mowing all of the neighbors' yards. You know, by the way, I have to say, I had a job. I mean, listen, some people didn't. Some people, some parents, which I'm not sure where we're gonna lay or lie when our kids get in of age. Some parents are like, your school is your job. You know, just get good grades and we'll talk. But my parents were like, yeah, if you want a car, you have to work. And so we did. But I worked at like the mall and all that. But so this guy, Patrick's character, or Peter. Patrick? Peter. Patrick Dempsey. Holy What's his crap. character's name? Oh, I have no idea. Ronald. Sorry, I do Ronald. know. Ronald. Yeah, they, gave, they have to give him a dweeb name. Yeah. Sorry for all the Ronalds out there. It's a great name. My Ronald grandpa's Weasley, name is One Ronald. of my favorite characters of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, she calls him Donald until she, last minute. He's like, by the way, my name is Ronald. But yes, she, he's like, I have a thousand dollars. You know, he's been saving the money. He's like, but here's the thing. You have to pretend to date me. Um, and then, you know, so he does. And they they have good chemistry. These two actors, they, mm-hmm. they're very cute. And of course she falls for him and he makes a scene basically demeaning her in front of everyone and hurts her feelings and then they kind of break up so then he becomes really cool in the group it's just what i don't like about this movie and on the rewatch is that it's like at her expense you know it's like i don't remember that about it yeah because i didn't i mean i've seen it a million times but i didn't go and rewatch it before today so I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I think I remember they have to fake a breakup. Yeah, they fake a breakup and he really like, he, like gives it to her. Mean. And I it it bothers me, but that's okay. I'll forgive. But then the thing that kind of starts to bring him back, and I think I might play the scene, is where his best friend, who's like this really nerdy guy, is like talking to one of the cool girls. And this big bu- butch boy um, is basically like, what are you doing talking to my girl? And he's about to kick his butt. And then Patrick Dempsey's character, Ronald, comes over with the baseball bat and he's like, I'll break your arm, your pitching arm. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, I know. And then he's like, remember, like the last time you broke your arm? And he's like, hey, man, we used to, remember we used to play together when we were kids. And and this, my best friend, the nerdy redheaded guy, carried you all the way to the 12 box to the hospital and you cried the whole way. Anyways, and then they get back together. I mean, that's really kind of the movie her name is cindy and you know she of course falls in love with him and it and she doesn't believe that by just dating her right that he'll be popular she thinks people will see right through that she's like that's not what it is it's not about like associating with cool people and she's proved uh wrong on that front but then also i do very much remember that speech where he stands up for his friend where it's like yeah that's what sucks about high school and it starts in middle school because especially if you never move if you live in the same town if you live in tucson your whole life i didn't i was uh moved out of tucson at the age of 12 but um all the kids that i went to school with you know i would have continued probably to go to school with them and it's so sad how we're all friends and then 
people just decide one day that like some people are cool yeah. and some people aren't when you have all those memories of like you're gonna beat up the kid who carried you to the hospital I what know. a dick are you it's and like sad. stop it I agree I agree and it's you know it's when you're young you're so stupid you know you just and and honestly not just being young I mean people in the real world I mean um what's her name Anna the lady who scammed all those people you know it's just the idea of like if you have money if you're oh, yeah, pop, yeah, yeah. if you're pop I almost said popular if you're popular <laughs> If you're, uh, you know, if you're popular and rich, and lo- especially in the nice '80s, clothes. it was all about rich. Yeah. You gotta be rich. You gotta be one of those preppy guys. Molly Ringwald always had a crush on. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I mean, we know that's not the truth as you get out of the high school world, but still, it's it's there. The other thing I really enjoyed about this movie, and I I'll post it on our um, in Instagram, but the the musical. Uh, the soundtrack is surprisingly good. I mean, besides they get a Beatles song, but there's this like Debbie Harry song when she's like, she goes, you know, solo. She has solo career and there's a song called French Kissing in the USA. was not a hit for a reason but the eclectic (laughs) (laughs) but the eclecticness of the soundtrack i feel like it gave it probably some some cool a cool vibe Mm -hmm. for the high schoolers at the time you know for the teenagers i was totally yeah i was totally obsessed with this movie when i was younger probably mostly because it did well it has adorable patrick dempsey and cool cindy mancini amanda peterson is the actress you said is her name Uh uh-huh and uh you know, it took place in Tucson. So it was like the backdrop was like my real life at the time when I watched the movie. And I think that was a big part of why I really, really liked it. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Tucson. I didn't know that. Oh, by the way, the actress, Amanda Peterson, sadly died when she was 43 years old of like drug related stuff. I just, I was looking it up, looking it up and it makes me, drugs are bad, man. Like, especially when they grab. so sad, yeah. You know, grip people's lives like that. I just... Ugh, makes me very, very sad. I wish that I yeah, could she'd, help people. I feel like I read, I also kind of was Googling about the movie just to freshen up on it. And I came across that article in People Magazine. And I guess she died of like a morphine, an accidental morphine yeah. overdose. But she had a lot of run-ins like with the law. She'd been arrested several times for things like getting drunk and getting in fights and stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's just so sad because obviously you burn real bright when you're a star and then I guess if maybe that goes away, wow. it can be be kind of hard and tragic and kind of yeah. do what you can to be seen again, you know? Right. Yeah. And anyways, sad, I was just like thinking, because if you think of the difference between, you know, Patrick Dempsey's career versus, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah. Because she's just as good in the movie. She's delightful. I was going to say, absolutely charismatic. Very. And they have great chemistry. Yeah. You're right. Like. You definitely are like, no, they really like each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Even for though sure. he's a dweeb and she's super cool. Doesn't she like spill red wine on her mom's jacket? Yeah. Or, like a part, or someone spills it on her? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's like a, it's like suede. That's a nightmare. Don't it's like do a it. suede jacket and red <laughs> wine. Gonna have to buy a new one yeah. for $1,000. Oh Even I now as an adult woman, I'm like, ooh, that would be tough. Oh if my I was God. like, shit, I have to replace this $1,000 item. I mean, a thousand dollars. Hence the tarp on then. my car, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think that uh, what do you call it? That jacket would be like ten thousand dollars now. You know, probably. If, yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Inflation and all that. You know, that's true. It's true. Actually, that'll come up in my story as well. Inflation and the what money was oh, interesting versus, versus now, just because it's interesting to me. <laughs> um, all right. Well, with that little uh, rom to soothe Yay. our souls before the crime. So the reason why. I kind of suggested gently, like maybe. Also, I was like, you can also do whatever you want. But I picked that movie because it's about teenagers in Tucson. Love it. Which is the same as the crime story I'm going to tell you about today. Are you familiar at all? Have you ever heard the story of the Pied Piper of Tucson? No, I hadn't. So it's like a, it took place, it all happened in the 60s. And the reason why my mom requested this is that she had gone home to Tucson. They're actually, my parents are in Tucson right now. No way. For like a, 
a little sibling reunion with my dad's um, siblings. I really wish that I was going. I should go. I should figure yeah. out a way to just drive down for a day. Don't hold me to that, mom, but maybe I'll try to figure out how to do it <laughs> if you listen to this while you're still there. Uh, but she was home, like I think, for her brother's birthday, and they were kind of talking about stuff. And this story came up because the the killer in this story... The serial killer, if I'm being honest, oh, in God. this story, went to high school with my uncle. Oh my They were God. not in the same grade, but they were there at the same time. Ew. And so my mom was like, do you know this story? And I was like, well, vaguely. I feel like I remember. I know that term, the Pied Piper of Tucson. Or maybe I just know the Pied Piper because it's like, you know, a pretty well-known fable or sure. fairy tale or whatever. So I decided, uh, yeah, we'll do it. We'll go into it. So... You have to kind of imagine, have you been to Tucson before, Vanya? I don't think so, no. So it's, you know, the desert is a beautiful place. Tucson is a town that is now, I think, the second largest, like, most populated city in Arizona. But it's located in a valley between two different mountain ranges. So no matter which way you look, there's beautiful mountains. But it's also, especially back in the 60s, you know, it was somewhere between, like, the Wild West and a, a boon town, and then also just a place people kind of pass through or retire to. Mm. But also in the 60s, something that was happening not just in Tucson, but all across the country, was all dumb babies that were born after World War II. Oh. They were teenagers now, and they far outnumbered adults oh. in pretty much everywhere. Because, you know, there was the baby boom, and then they grew up, and they weren't babies anymore. They right. were bored teenagers looking for a way to entertain themselves and in tucson the place where the teenagers would go just for something to do was speedway boulevard which is like a big street still there today apparently i did listen to one thing that said at one point in the last i don't know how many decades it was given the title of the ugliest uh, street in America. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think um, just at, just at one time. I don't think it like stands for all time. But it's a bull, you know, it's like gas stations and uh, fast food joints and all that. Imagine the 60s, like kids in there. It's like think Greece, like kids in their little Thunderbirds driving up and down looking for people to drag race. And I don't know if they're actually drag racing, but just like looking for stuff to do. Getting hamburgers, looking for cute boys and cute girls. Um, and... <laughs> It was like, you know, the adults were like, these kids are out of control, you know, and right. things were pretty wild. And so that's just like the world we're entering into. So that's that's the environment of the story today. And we're going to start on August 16th of 1965, when 17-year-old Gretchen and 13-year-old Wendy Fritz, sisters, had just gotten back from a family vacation to San Diego, California, which is also a weird tie-in because that's where I always used to go on vacation when I lived Funny. in Tucson, was to San Diego. They'd just gotten back from a trip. The parents had a function. Um, the Fritz, uh, I, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I have the parents' names, but the dad, Dr. Fritz, was, is, was considered at the time like one of the most like world-renowned heart surgeons in the country. Oh, wow. So they're a very well-to-do, respected family. Mom and dad had an event to go to, and the girls decided they wanted to go see the latest Elvis Presley movie at the drive-in. And that was the last time either one of them were ever seen again. So immediately the next day, heard the parents report them missing. Oh, no. And one thing of note is when they're speaking to the police, they're like, if it was just Gretchen, we would assume she ran away. But Wendy would never stay out all night. Wendy would never let us, you know, worry like this. And so we really think something's wrong. But at this time in Tucson in the 60s, in 1965, something like 50 to 100 runaways were reported missing every single month. So again, that's how many teenagers there were. Wow. Um, yeah. And also how seriously maybe police were taking kids who disappeared I don't think many times they thought more than they ran away they'll be back don't worry about it right but the parents were really concerned because Wendy the 13 year old was very different than her big sister so with Gretchen it should be noted that they'd had a lot of problems with Gretchen she had gotten into a lot of trouble not only with school but also with the law she'd been involved in like an attempted robbery of a liquor store she'd been suspended from her or expelled sorry not ex expelled from Ooh. her fancy private school and she was just kind of naturally like 
defiant. So she would have been um, in that time period, probably like a little unique, although it sounds like maybe teenagers in this time, it was not so much like leave it to beaver anymore. Right. They were like double middle fingers up at everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to rob liquor stores and do what we want. Oh my God. But the police kind of, you know, they start to look, but they're like, we think that they're, that this is a runaway situation. Um, the parents are so frustrated with the lack of seeming concern that they actually hire a private detective who within a week finds Gretchen's brand new Pontiac car, her little red Pontiac parked in a parking lot at the Flamingo Motel. And inside the car is her purse that has money, her ID. Oh my God. And so finally, a week after the girls have gone missing, police finally realize, okay, she probably didn't run away. Something probably happened here. So they start interviewing her friends, a.k.a. the Speedway crowd, if you will. And um, m- most of them are like, we have no idea. They interview her ex-boyfriend, a guy named Charles Smitty. They called him Smitty Schmid. And he says, you know, she probably ran off to California. She told me that she met a guy when she was there with her family you know, just a, the week before she had disappeared. So police then reach out to San Diego PD who, you know, have the girls pictures, ask tons of questions, but they don't get anywhere. And police then are like, all right, we have to look closer to home. And as I mentioned, the adults thought these Speedway kids were bad news. So the cops, the local Tucson cops become convinced that they are involved in the disappearance of the Fritz sisters. So they start conducting interviews. As I mentioned, they interviewed her ex-boyfriend and they bring in um, some people that were known to have beefs with Gretchen. So there was actually one of Smitty's closest friends was this kid named Richie Bruns, but he and Gretchen had like a very well-known hatred of one another She was dating his best friend. She thought he was a loser. She told all the girls he was like a creep and a freak. And he had at one point said, like, she deserves to die. I hope she dies. So he gets hauled in. Also, there had been rumors that he had been involved in another murder earlier, even though it had turned out he had not been involved in it. That rumor mill definitely, (laughs) uh, you know, didn't help his case. So he gets hauled in for questioning. He's like, no, I didn't like her, but I had nothing to do with anything regarding her disappearance. I don't know what happened to them. And he says, you should talk to Mary French. So Mary French was another one of Smitty's girlfriends. And the night before Wendy and Gretchen disappeared, Gretchen and Mary French had gotten into a huge, like, and everybody saw it, huge fight at one of Smitty's parties where Mary was like, you need to back off. He's my man and I'm pregnant. And then Gretchen was like, no, I'm pregnant. You need to back off. Uh-oh. Don't know what, I don't think either of them, there's a chance Mary was in fact pregnant. Gretchen definitely wasn't, but they had this very public fight. And so police then bring in Mary French for questioning. And she says, you know, I didn't like her. She was rich. She was a bitch, but I have, I had nothing to do. I don't know where she is. And police, as they're interviewing her, recall that this isn't actually the first time they've spoken to Mary French about a missing girl. Because as I mentioned, there had been several, like what, 50 to 100. So the year before, there was a young 15-year-old girl whose name was Aline Rowe, who had basically been watching TV with her mom. Her mom worked as a night nurse at Tucson Hospital. And on the night of uh, May 31st, 1964, Her mom had opened her daughter's door before she left, saw her daughter presumably asleep in bed, like full like curlers set in her hair. She had an exam the next morning at like six. It had to be at school at 6 a.m. for this big test she'd been studying for. And she was not a member of the Speedway crowd. She didn't hang with those kids. She was a good student. She did great um, at school, wanted to be an oceanographer, had a great relationship with her mother. And when her mom got home in the morning, her daughter was gone and she knew something was wrong, but police just kept telling her she just ran away. But Mary French was Aline's neighbor and the two girls were buddies 
like would kind of hang out sometimes. And her mom, Aline's mom, didn't like Mary. She thought she was a bad influence. She was always coming over like smoking cigarettes. And she really didn't like Mary's boyfriend, Charles Smitty Schmid, because she thought he was really creepy. And she's the one that actually told police that they should talk to them. So they had all been questioned. The same three I just mentioned, Smitty, Mary, and uh, Richie, had all been questioned in the disappearance of Aline Rowe. But they had nothing, you know, on them. And nothing. They didn't even know if she what had happened, if she'd just run away or if something had happened to her. And so they had kind of just been questioned and let go. But now these same characters are coming back. And they are also very closely connected to Gretchen Fritz. So police are like, okay, I think, I think maybe there's something here. So I want to pause here real quickly and tell you just a little bit about uh, Schmidt, Schmitty, <laughs> Charles Howard Schmidt Jr., who was born July 8th in 1942. He was born to an unwed uh, mother, which uh, in the 40s was a big, absolutely not. So he was immediately put up for adoption. And he was actually adopted at uh-huh. one day old by Charles Sr. and Catherine Schmid, who were a very wealthy couple in Tucson, Arizona. They um, owned and operated the Hillcrest Nursing Home. So they were very well-to-do. They had a great business, and they adopted him on day one. And he had a good relationship with his mother, but he had a very difficult relationship with his fa- his adopted father. His, his father basically thought he never... He, he had all this potential, right? So in high school... He did horribly in school, even though his own teachers and anyone who ever spoke to him could tell you he was very intelligent. Mm. Like he was a smart kid. He just didn't like school or didn't want to focus in class. And that really frustrated his dad. Um, I guess they had like a lot of bad vibes between them. Uh, But his mother loved him. And by all accounts, I don't know how happy they were as a family, but they spoiled him rotten. So he was given anything he wanted. Uh, One thing he did excel at, and I'd be curious, I should have tried to reach out to my uncle and see if he remembered this. So even though he wasn't a good student, he was a tremendous athlete. He, in fact, was the sole reason that their high school made it to the state championship for gymnastics. Oh, and he was he was excellent at it. He won state, uh, took the school all the way there, and then just abruptly, his senior year stopped doing gymnastics. Mm. And I never could, in all the things I read or watched, I, there was never really a reason given. I kind of get the sense that for Smitty, who we will eventually want to be calling Shitty, I promise. <laughs> um, it's like something was only interesting to him when it was exciting. And then once the excitement of it or the newness or the thrill wore off, he was done with it. And he just wanted to find the next new shiny thing. Hmm. So he quits gymnastics his senior year. Then he gets caught stealing tools from like the shop class and he gets suspended. And then he just decides after being suspended that he's just not going to go back to school. So, his senior year of high school, he gets suspended, could have gone back after whatever the week or two. And he's like, nah, I'm good. And never graduated high school, but never really left high school either. So he's always hanging around with his high school pals. Eventually, eventually he's even older, you know, and it's like younger high school kids. But here's the thing. He had, I guess, some kind of charisma. Now he fancied himself like an Elvis Presley type. So much so that he dyed his hair black. He would wear like pancake makeup on his face to give him like a tan. He would draw with grease paint a mole on his face. I don't remember. Did Elvis have a mole on his face? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So like trying to replicate Elvis's mole. He was super short, like five foot three. And so he would stuff, he would wear these cowboy boots that he would stuff several inches of dirty rags and crushed tin cans into these boots to make himself taller. So he was so like, like he walking on stilettos. Yeah, but he was walking on like aluminum cans in the shoes. Apparently he did have quite a weird walk, so much so that some people thought he had like wooden feet because he just walked very strangely. But I guess he thought, I'd rather be tall and walk weird <laughs> than my normal height because Elvis is not 5'3". So he's kind of eccentric, but he's got charisma and whatever it was about him, girls 
loved him. It didn't hurt that while, you know, he's still hanging out with all these high school kids, he actually has his own house. His mom got him. It's like a little cottage. It's on their property, but he has his own house. Um, They gifted him a convertible and a motorcycle, and he was given $300 a month in an allowance for doing nothing. And just so you know, $300 a month in the 1960s was $3,000 today. Oh, my God. So this kid, or young adult, for all intents and purposes, is being given like more money than he needs by a lot. (laughs) All the freedom he wants. And he's not doing anything. He has like no aspirations other than to be like the party thrower that all of the teenagers of Tucson think is like the coolest. He's like the ringleader of all the, you know, he's like the king of the teenagers of Tucson. Which is just, I don't know. I'm like, so sad, brah. Like, you have so many opportunities. You're clearly clearly smart. Clearly could have, you know, done something instead of uh, just getting wasted. He was always also trying to figure out how to scam people out of money. So one of the things that he did, Vanya, was he proposed with uh, glass-cut $13 engagement rings to two different girls. One of them was Mary French. And one of them was a girl named Kathy Marath. And his whole plan was, I'm going to get engaged to these girls, I'm going to make them get jobs, and we're going to open joint bank accounts, and then I'm going to spend the money they make. Now, Mary, they can't actually get married because she's not old enough. You have to be 18, and they can't fake it to actually get married. But she goes to work at his parents' like nursing home to make money to give to him, whereas Kathy kind of sees right through it, and she throws the ring back at him, and she's like, no, brah, like, you're you're an adult. I'm like 15 and you're like 20. Like you're a loser. Yeah. So she throws the ring back at him, but Mary continues to be basically obsessed with Smitty. Then uh in the summer of 1965, Smitty meets or I guess I should say he doesn't meet her. He sees Gretchen Fritz at the pool, at the public pool. And he's so taken with her. She's she's very beautiful. She's petite. She's blonde. He was super into blondes. In fact, all the girls he had been dating up to that point, he was making them dye their hair blonde. There's so many things wrong with this guy. Uh, but he saw her at the pool and proceeds to follow her home. Knock on her front door. She opens the door and he's like, don't we know each other? And that somehow works. So he like stalks a stranger back to her house tells her we know each other right they don't know each other but she's like "Ooh, you followed me home how romantic um and that thus their relationship begins now one thing that charles schmitty schmid shittastic here didn't realize (laughs) is that unlike all of the other teenage girls he'd been dating who were like willing to basically do anything for him and who thought he was just like everything Gretchen was like a tour de force of a person. She was actually described by her teachers after she'd been expelled as like a pathological liar and possibly psychotic. Oh my. Like, like a potential like sociopath or psychopath and that they suggested um, treatment. Like huh. she had, she was her own, you know, she had a lot going on there as well. So their relationship was not like his other relationships where he just told the girls what to do and they did it. In fact... Once they were in a relationship, it was incredibly volatile the whole time. She was really jealous. She called him like all day, every day. He was if he wasn't home when she called at this time, she'd lose her mind on him. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, and uh, there were really, like one point, I think she threw like shoe polish on his car. Uh, he was pissed at her, thought she was cheating on him. So he wrote a letter to the health department of Tucson saying that she was spreading venereal disease ah. throughout the community. Like they were horrible together. Wow. Bored but teenagers. Also, I know, bored teenagers. But they were, you know, they were also shitty to each other. Like he was seeing other girls. She was seeing other guys. But they just couldn't kind of quit each other. Oh, wow. And I think it was a couple months into their relationship that he decided he wanted to test Gretchen. He was like, I want her to know who I really am. And if she loves me, then she loves me for me. And so he tells Gretchen that he murdered 15-year-old Aline Rowe. Remember the young 15-year-old girl that went missing the year before? And he did. 
oh. in fact, do this. So not only did he tell Gretchen about it, but he drove her out to where Gretchen's body was. And instead of this being like a huge, oh my God, take me home, let me go straight to the police, she keeps the secret, continues to see him, and decides that her, the best use of this information is basically blackmail. Like anytime he steps out on her or does something she doesn't like, she's like, I'm going to tell what you did. Um, which, of course, I'm like, that's just so dangerous one. And also, like, go to the police. Mm. My God, what is wrong? <sighs> okay. So that's basically the relationship from those two. Now we do know that Aline Rowe was killed by the people that her mother believed were involved in her death. Really? And so I'm going to go back now and I'm going to tell you in the in the court transcripts when he's finally arrested, Mary, his girlfriend at the time, who was present for this, and another friend of his, a guy named John Saunders, who helped participate in it, they testified against him. Basically, there was one day where he just like woke up that day and said to Mary, I want to kill a girl. Oh, I just want to see what it feels like and I want to see if I can get away with it. And her being like, I don't know. Part of me is like, stupid. Are you stupid? I mean, but maybe. also just like desperately in love with him. She was like, okay. So he gave her a list with a couple of names and Aline Rowe was the third name on that list, but she was also neighbors with Mary and they were friendly enough that she was like, I could probably get Aline to come out with us. So he tells Mary to tell Aline to come out on a double date with him. And so it'll be Mary and Schmitty and John Saunders, his buddy, will be the date for Aline. And Aline has that big test. And she's like, no, no, no. But they keep, uh, Mary keeps knocking on her window. And she's like, come on, just come have a beer with us. So finally, giving in to peer pressure, uh. Aline still with the curlers in her hair. And she, her like little outfit, her mom said she kind of wore around the house was like a black bathing suit and some like, it's hot in Arizona, y'all. So it makes oh. sense to me. <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> a black bathing suit, like some sandals. And she had her hair in curlers. Like she had been in bed when her mom left. She put on a cover up and she went with them and they drove out to the desert <gasps> where they all got out of the car and walked down to a wash in the desert, which is basically like a dried out riverbed. Right. And uh, Mary was told to go back to the car to like get a radio so they could listen to music. And then Smitty was like, oh, I'll go with you, actually. So that they leave. John Saunders had been instructed by Smitty to trigger warning to sexually assault Aline. Oh, my God. So shortly after they walk away, they start to hear her screaming. Smitty looks at Mary and he goes, oh, I should go help her. Mary goes back to the car, and basically just like locks herself in and turns the radio up, even though they all know what the plan is. Uh. So per the testimony of John Saunders and Mary French, Smitty went back where he found Aline and John struggling. Uh, John was unable to... Uh, actually sexually assault her he was not able to make that happen and so then smitty raped aline they then had her put her bathing suit back on he tried to strangle her but was <gasps> unsuccessful and so he grabbed a rock and beat her oh hit her in the head God. until she died she then oh, sorry he then ran back to the car opened the door where Mary was sitting, said, we just killed her. I love you so much. Gave her a big kiss. Was like clearly incredibly excited Ew. by this. And he said, grab the shovel. We got to bury her. So Mary gets out of the car and goes with him back down to the wash to uh. help him bury the young girl that she lured into their car. The fuck is wrong with people? So this is the information that Gretchen has when there is supposedly a party going on at uh, Schmidt's house that she wasn't invited to. And this is the kind of thing that pissed her off. So while she and her sister at the movie, she catches wind of this party, she and Wendy go over to Smitty's house where she confronts him. There is no party, by the way. I don't know if it, that was like a mistake that someone told her, but it's just her sister sitting like on the couch while they're having this huge fight in the kitchen and she threatens she's going to tell on him she says she's like I've had enough like how could you do this to me you're humiliating me I'm going to tell my dad so he grabs uh, one of the things he was known for at his parties was he 
he was in a band, you guys, like everything awful about the kind of guys teenagers like. Um, and he would play guitar and have him sing. You know, he fancied himself, like I said, Elvis Presley. He re- he took one of the guitar strings off of his guitar and he strangled <gasps> Wendy. And, or sorry, he strangled Gretchen. And then because Wendy was a witness after he killed Gretchen, he grabbed Wendy, who was completely like in panic mode and just terrified. And he killed her. He put both of their bodies in the trunk of his car, drove them out to the desert, dumped their bodies, wiped his car down, and then drove Gretchen's car and parked it at the Flamingo Motel, which was only like half a mile from his house. And uh, it's just so, sorry, I've like lost my place in the story that I'm telling you. But that is, so that's what happens that evening. Now, he doesn't really keep this a secret. That's what's wild. That's actually what makes this story so insane. Not only do several people know that he killed Aline Rowe, including the two that helped him do it, but he like bragged about killing people to these like teenage followers of his. And even though people kind of thought maybe he had had something to do with Gretchen and Wendy disappearing, they weren't really sure until a week later, a week after they went missing, he had his friend Richie Bruns. So Richie's the one that hated Gretchen that said he wished that she was dead. Um, And he basically said, you know what happened with Gretchen, don't you? And Richie was like, I do not. And he's like, well, I killed her. And I just dumped him in a really obvious place because I don't even care. It's like no one's looking. But and Richie's like, what? What are you talking about? And uh, he's like, yeah, you want to see? Oh, my God. And Richie's like, I don't I don't know. In fact, Richie, you guys ends up ended up writing a book. I guess he actually wrote it at the time of the trial, but it wasn't released until I think 2015, 2016. And it's called I, a squealer okay. <laughs> by Richie, but yeah. Um, an insider's, you know, versions of the story. And I actually read it and it's, you know, it's very interesting. He clearly seems to think that mental illness was playing a really big role in a lot of what was happening with Schmitty between oh. like the weird fascination with Elvis and the crazy stuff he would do to himself physically to obviously his behavior and the crazy, you know, he was getting kind of reckless, like not just telling people, but you know, not even burying. So they buried Allen's body. He didn't even bury the, the Fritz sisters bodies. He just drove out into the desert and just dropped them there oh where like anybody could have found them. And he said he'd put them in a really obvious spot, which it turns out he did. The place where the kids would often go out to drink beer and like make out in the desert. That's where he took them. So Richie at this time had been dating. Do you remember the girl Kathy Marath who threw the $13 engagement ring oh, back sure. at, in Smitty's face? So after she ended things with Smitty, I guess Richie was kind of comforting her and they started dating Although it wasn't like super serious for her, Richie was like very into her and she eventually like breaks up with him. But part of the reason why Smitty told Richie part of the reason why he picked Aline Rowe to kill was because she had rejected another friend of his who had asked her for a date. And that was why she was on that list because she had rejected them. So now Richie is becoming increasingly worried about Kathy's safety because not only is she one of Smitty's exes, but she dumped him as well. And at one point, uh, Smitty made a joke that he should go retrieve Gretchen's body and string it up on the porch of Kathy Marath's home just to show her what can happen when she uh, doesn't treat Smitty's friends right. And so I feel like kind of fairly so he's worried that Kathy's going to be Smitty's next victim. However, what he does is insane. He basically takes it upon himself to guard her 24 hours a day. So when she's home, he is outside, like walking in front of her house. When she's at school, he's following her to school. So much so that her father has to call the police and is like, this young man is stalking my daughter. And um, eventually a judge literally says, all right, here's the deal, bro. You are harassing this young girl, this whole family, the whole actually like their whole neighborhood was like, dude, go the fuck away. Even though in his mind, he's trying to keep her alive. And he said in this book, the only time he ever felt safe or calm was actually when he was hanging out with Smitty because he knew that meant that Kathy was safe. Otherwise, he was like 
patrolling in front of her house. And part of the reason he thought this too was like there was a a point in time right after they broke up where I guess there had been a prowler that had come several times to the house that was like saying things through a window and he was convinced that it was Smitty. But when the when he's finally taken to court for harassment, the judge is like, here's the deal. Uh, you are not allowed to have anything to do with this family. And in fact, I am going to send you to Columbus, Ohio to live with your grandmother for a minimum of six months so that you can get over this insane infatuation you have with this young woman. And you can only return to Tucson when you can assure and promise the court that you will not harass Kathy Marath and her family anymore. And so he's kind of begrudgingly sent away because all he wants to do is protect her, right? So he gets to Columbus and he, in his book, he's, he has this nightmare over and over again where the description that Smitty told him of how he killed Gretchen plays out, but in Gretchen's place is Kathy and he can never get to her in time to save her. So one night he just completely breaks down and he tells his grandmother the whole story, everything he knows. He knows that Smitty killed Aline Rowe. He knows that he killed Gretchen and Wendy Fritz. And he even knows where the bodies are of Gretchen and Wendy oh Fritz because God. he went out there to help Smitty bury them when he said they were in like an obvious spot. And he was basically, basically, I think Smitty was like, all right, I told you I have to put you on the hook for this somehow. So you're going to help me bury the bodies. And that way you're also culpable and you won't tell on me. So gra- the grandma's like, well, uh, if this is true, you need to call the cops. But she also said to the cops, I thought he just had one too many beers. And I hear beer can make your mind do funny things. So <laughs> she wasn't even sure. Like she thought it sounded so insane that he maybe was making it up. But he wasn't. So he gets the police on the phone, tells them the whole story. They come the following day. They bring him back to Tucson where he leads detectives to uh, Gretchen and Wendy's bodies like uh-huh. he knows where they are because he helped bury yeah. them so he takes them right there and basically like blows the whistle turns into like the the witness for the prosecution and within a week Charles Schmidt is arrested put on trial uh, both Mary French and John Saunders who were participants in Aline Rose murder they um they kind of made deals. They still both went to jail for it. Although Mary French only went to prison for like four. She was sentenced for four to five years and got out in three. But John Saunders was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole, I think, after 15 years. But they testified against him in the Gretchen and Wendy case because they, for some reason, could not take police to Aline's body. They couldn't, even though they had helped bury it, they couldn't find her body. So they went ahead with a trial against uh, Smitty for just the murder of Gretchen and Wendy and they testified and they told all of the details and basically very quickly uh, I think once the trial was over I think it was four hours the jury deliberated and came back and they vo- they said he was guilty for first degree murder and they recommended death as punishment so then prosecutors decide okay I think we're going to I think we're going to move forward with a case against him for Aline Rowe. We have the testimony. We have the witnesses. At this point, Schmitty hires F. Lee Bailey, who I don't know if you recognize that name, Mm -hmm. but he's like a very famous defense attorney. Um, He defended the Boston Strangler. He uh, he was part of O.J. Simpson's defense team. He's like a, a famous defense, like defense lawyer for big, big cases. And he actually recommended based on everything that had happened in the first case, the death sentence, they basically offered if you plead guilty to killing her, we'll take death off the table. And you're, I, I, part of me is like, I don't really get why that's appealing if he's already been sentenced to death. But F. Lee Bailey recommends that he just take this plea. He pleads guilty to second degree murder and um, is basically sent away to prison for the rest of his life until he is going to be put to death. But uh, I think it's a year after that, he files an appeal saying that his he was pressured into taking that guilty plea for Aline and he wants to take them to her body so that they can see that she did not die of like a skull fracture because they said you know he beat her over her head with a rock so he's like I'm going to prove to you there's not going to be any skull fracture and you're going to know that I didn't have anything to do with this and that I you know I falsely pled guilty so there's this whole big production Vanya this is why it's just so weird like how different the time period is right like They take him with them, obviously, because he's the one who knows where she is. But there's like journalists, 
looky-loos, rubberneckers, if you will, wow. all there while they're ex- they're unearthing this 15-year-old girl oh. who's been missing for two years. And because he's a fucking idiot and crazy, when they do finally, uh, I guess exhume is not the right word, when they, f- they do find her skull, there is a huge skull fracture, like, down the back of her skull that's, like, visible without any kind of microscope or anything like that. So, obviously, I think this was just a ploy to get to go on a little trip, get to get out of jail, get to get his jollies off by, you know, revisiting the scene of his first kill. Uh, And it's just horrific. There's even photographs, like, where he himself, the murderer himself, is holding her skull in his hands. How? And and was quoted, I know, there's pictures of it, and was quoted as saying, be careful, it's fragile, and this is is how I'm going to get acquitted of this. And all of this is like photographed, you can go on Google and you can see a picture of this monster. Just to me, it's like such a slap in the face to anyone who loved Aline and to her. Like, why are you letting this monster touch her? It doesn't make any sense and it makes me very angry. Yeah, somebody should have gotten in trouble for that. Yeah, somebody, everyone should have been fired. Um, So his uh, conviction stands. In 1971, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the death sentence was unconstitutional, and so his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Now, while in prison, Smitty tried to escape a lot and was actually (laughs) successful on November 11th 1972 he and another inmate who was also like a, I think a multiple murderer had murdered multiple people escaped from prison where they took four hostages at a ranch in Tempe Arizona or they, they got to this ranch they took four people hostage then they let the hostages go grabbed some food at a Sonic went their separate ways and uh, were eventually apprehended like four days later and Bo- both of them both of them yeah. and and taken back to jail. But he did escape at one point and that was one of many many attempts. Then on March 20th of 1975 during an argument and fight apparently about another escape attempt allegedly. Um he is stabbed somewhere in the neighborhood of 47 times by Ooh. two fellow inmates who if the story is true I guess maybe like he they were going to plan on escaping and he somehow fouled it up or backed out. They stabbed him 47 times. He had uh, like a punctured lung. He had perforated um, intestines. Uh, they had to remove one of his eyes. He's taken obviously to the hospital where he, they have to remove one of his eyes. They have to patch up his uh, lungs. And then while he's in hospital, he ends up getting a blood infection and they have to get, perform a tracheotomy on him so that he can breathe. And 10 days after the attack, uh, at the age of 32, Charles Schmid, shitty Schmid, died of his injuries. And um, that is the story of the Pied Piper of Tucson. Now, the reason I wanted to read you a quote from this, there's a very famous article that came out in, I believe, 1966 in Life magazine, which was like a big thing back in the day, mm-hmm. in so much that it brought this story from being like a local horror show to like on the national stage. Like all of America was talking about how did all these teenagers, because when police interviewed them, at all of like these kids that hung around him all the time after he'd been arrested, they said, you know, I kind of knew... But I wasn't sure. I didn't know for sure. Also, if I did know for sure, I wouldn't have said anything. I don't want to be a narc, basically. And they're like, what? (laughs) But this is so Don Moser is the name of the author. And he said, some of the older kids, those who worked, who had something else to do, thought Smitty was a creep. But to the youngsters, to the bored and the lonely, to the dropout and the delinquent, to the young girls with beehive hairdos and tight pants they didn't quite fill out, and to the boys with acne and no jobs. To these people, Smitty was a kind of folk hero. Nutty, maybe, but at least more dramatic, more theatrical, more interesting than anyone else in their lives. A semi-ludicrous, sexy-eyed Pied Piper who, stumbling along in his rag-stuffed boots, led them up and down Speedway Boulevard. Whoa. And it's just, uh, it's interesting because Tucson got a, 
like got real pissed off about this article because it kind of insinuates that this couldn't have happened elsewhere. And in the in the book, I a squealer, uh, Richie Bruns also says he thinks that Tucson was uniquely um, capable of being the environment where this could happen. He doesn't believe this could happen in other towns. And I'm not exactly sure if that is just because, you know, like I said, there's all these teenagers. There's also all these like retired and semi-retired people. There's no real industry in Tucson. You know, like there's not like a, a factory or a mine or like an industry that is what keeps that town going. And it just left to a lot of bored rebellious teenagers just Mm. trying to figure out how to have any kind of excitement and what's crazy about schmitty is that he clearly you know at first he he was he just like liked the adoration you know of the young people which is why he didn't move on and then when that no longer filled him up then he's like let's see if i can get away with murder you know and it just kept escalating to the point where i mean they do say when they arrested him he literally had like a bandage on his nose that had been there for months because he said he got into a fight and broke his nose, which was not true. The pancake makeup, he had like so many layers of it. You know, he almost looked like John. He was like yellow instead of tan. I mean, he looked like a man in the middle of like a severe mental breakdown. I should mention just because I don't want to leave her out of the story that uh, prior to his arrest, he had married a 15 year old girl. So he's 23 when he was arrested. He had married a girl who just recently turned 15 named Diane, who was not a part of his life when any of this happened, but who very much got caught up in the crossfire after he was arrested and, the, and there was all this media attention. She definitely got, you know, pulled into the story. And ultimately, she divorced him not too long after he was found guilty, but 15 years old. So this is like a predator on so many different levels, yeah, like a murderer, sure. a groomer of young women. Um, probably somebody could have benefited from some like mental health, mental health help for sure. Yeah. But I don't know that that would have been enough to, to change. It's hard, you know, because you don't, you don't know really how he was, know how he was raised, you know, like what kind of influence, like did, did anybody hug him? I don't know. Right, I mean, they gave him lots of money. Yeah, it was just like, here's money. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, because his mom, they, uh, his parents ended up getting divorced, but his mom, she stuck by him through the whole thing and she ended up being left with all of his legal fees, which left her like pretty much broke and she ended up dying in like a small town in Arizona and was basically poverty stricken by, like she was bankrupted by her son's legal bills. Gross. So just like another victim of this, but also maybe a little bit of an enabler, like make him get a job. Like you said, you were just talking about having a job oh, with yeah, Patrick Dempsey. Right. Get a job. I mean, yeah. they're all saying there were no jobs. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a nutty story. It's and a nutty so much story. That so many people knew and nobody said anything. But I think an interesting, like besides the extremeness of this, like I'm bored, let's go murder. But I do think there is something to say about being bored and not having any, uh, and, and getting everything you want. Yeah. Like, and so having to constantly not push. Good. No, those, that's a dangerous combination. Like having uh, endless resources, not having to do anything to earn them, and then also being bored out of your mind. Together. It's like a recipe yeah. for making really horrible choices. I mean, I would hope it wouldn't be a recipe for that for just anybody. No, I don't think but, so. But I mean, it's I definitely... It's to me, it's just this it's wild that that he could get away with it because, you know, by, by the time he was arrested, like Aline had been she had been gone for over well over a year. That's you know, and so pe- everybody knew what happened to her. See something, just say a, something. Hello. Yeah. I don't want to be a something. narc. What? But you're not. I mean, but this isn't being a narc. No. This is turning in somebody who murdered someone exactly. for no reason. I'm so like, anyway, does anybody, that's the story. Does anybody have, like, yeah, no, I was just going to say, where are the parents? <laughs> but there were so many kids. Oops. Well, apparently, too, according to Richie Brun's book, I, a squealer, which I just like to say because I think it's <laughs> hilarious. Um, according to his book, Richie, like I said, even though he may have physically been a little odd to look at and the way he walked was definitely weird because he was older for some reason when it came to like the parents, like he could turn on the charm. Like huh. parents 
did, parents did not fear their kids hanging out in his company. I think my kids just opened the door to a stranger. Oh, um, should I let you go to well, hear that? Maybe. No, I think. I'm like, I see that there's a person at the door. A stranger? One of our, uh, sorry, it's one of our friends. It's fine. Oh, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I was like, do you need to go upstairs? Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Just opening the door to a stranger, <laughs> but not a stranger. So we're good. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's the story that my mom requested because wow. I think she only knew a little bit about it. I think I, when I asked her about it initially, I said, you know, because my mom was born. Well, I won't give that away. My mom was would have been too young Way at the time young. this all happened. Like her big brother was in high school at the same time as this guy. But she did say that after this all came out, her mother definitely uh, tightened the reins in terms of... Oh, I mean, I would And I'm, I'm guessing everyone's uh, parents did that. Because yeah. just to be like, oh, y'all are just hanging out with a murderer, knowing about it, not saying anything. Damn. I mean, it's crazy. And yeah, I can't... I'm. It's not surprising that she wants to hear this story because to. it's just so scandalous. It's like just hard to even wrap your mind around. It is. And there are aspects to it that, I mean, I could have gotten into, but I feel like I just wanted to kind of, the mafia at one point apparently was like interested in figuring what, out what happened to the Fritz sisters and like came and took Richie and Schmitty to like a hotel room to like question them. Weird. Like Schmitty called called the FBI, like directly tried to get a hold of J. Edgar Hoover to ah. be like, please help me. <laughs> um, just like some weird, I recommend I a Squealer by Richie Bruns. It's very short. It didn't take long to read at all. But uh, we love you, Rum Criminal. That's right, we do. We have a um, couple fun episodes in the works. Yeah. I think we're moving to like a monthly situation That's now and right. try to bring you guys at least an episode a month. And uh, let us know if there's anything you want us to do. That's right. I sounds good. I sounds yeah. good to me. All right, you guys. We're back. Bye. All right. Bye, Rom Criminals. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Rom Crime with Avrin and Vanya. Episodes arrive every other Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on all things Rami and crimey. You can also follow us on Instagram at Rom Crime or email us movie and true crime suggestions at romcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.